Good afternoon, and thanks so much for being with us on this Thursday. Coming up on the program, this could be a game changer when it comes to people being comfortable traveling. Not just being comfortable, but then not having to quarantine for two weeks upon returning. We're going to get more details on a pilot project. Richard Zussman joining us, as he does every day, although not for too, too much longer, with Election Day being on Saturday. Taking a look at who is where today with the three major parties where the New Democrats, the Liberals, and the BC Greens are, and where things stand as far as the election is going. Also, some record numbers as far as people who have mailed in ballots and who have voted in the advance polls. Also coming up, being debated at Vancouver City Council today, the issue of free parking for veterans. And many people asking the question, why is this even being discussed right now? I'm going to share with you a couple of the speakers who addressed council earlier today, and we are expecting that vote at some point this afternoon. Also going to get a bit of a preview for the political event, you could say, of the evening, the last presidential debate. Will it look different from the chaotic one that we saw before? Does a muted microphone switch make all the difference? We're going to talk about that in the second hour of the program. Right now, though, as you've been hearing in the news, rapid testing at airports, could that be the thing to replace mandatory 14-day quarantine for international travelers, anybody coming into Canada from outside the country? We'll take a listen to this report from Global News' Brianna Carnegie about what has been announced this morning. It's mandated that international travelers self-isolate for 14 days, but that could soon be shortened to 48 hours if the person receives a negative COVID-19 test result. This pilot program will safely explore whether a new approach for managing the international borders is possible. Premier Jason Kenney says Canadians returning to Alberta by land or air can take part in the voluntary screening option. If the COVID-19 test result comes back negative, travellers can stop quarantining as long as they commit to a second test about a week after arrival. The results will help shape future provincial and federal policy, and ultimately they'll help to find a new approach for international travel. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So what does this actually mean for the traveling public or the public hoping to get back traveling? Well, Claire Newell is the president of Travel Best Bets, and she joins us now to talk a bit more about this, as well as refunds being offered by the travel, by the airlines. But Claire, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Oh, thanks for having me, Jill. It's some exciting breaking news, that's for sure. Yeah, and this is something I think that people have been waiting for as far as really being able to think about traveling internationally and coming back into the country. So what are you hearing about rapid testing at airports replacing the mandatory quarantine? Uh, First of all, a lot of... uh people in the travel industry applauding this news that just came out in a joint statement by the government of Canada and the government of Alberta. And they have announced the launch of a new test uh, pilot program to safely test a, a reduced quarantine period so that it will still protect Canadians from COVID-19. And it's going to happen at Calgary International Airport starting November the 2nd. To start, it will only be for those uh, passengers who were aboard uh, nonstop flights internationally that are coming into the Calgary International Airport and they will be eligible to quarantine only 
until they get a negative test result. So that could reduce the quarantine from 14 days, they're saying, to as few as two. And again, the start date of this trial is November 2nd. And do you get any, obviously it'll it'll depend on the results and to see how it's working, but do you get any sense on the goal being to expand this on how long that might, that might take? I can only assume that that would be the goal. They... I think that they will run this test for uh, at least a month and see how successful or not it is and then make the decision to roll this out, particularly to the large airports that are accepting international travelers at this time. Um, you know, for a long time, uh, the airlines, um, airports, and many people in the travel industry have been saying that they were really desperate to get a science-based approach to uh, effectively open travel, but protect Canadian citizens. And I think this is a a really great start. Uh, I'm excited to see the results and I hope they're good. (laughs) And and why do you think they chose Calgary as the airport? Uh, I know we've had the hub airports that are still accepting flights uh, have been through the pandemic, but was there, is it the size of the airport to do a test like this? Or what do you think the reasoning there is? Well, I'm not sure why, you know, uh, Air Canada announced that they were doing a test pilot program, um, which wasn't going to be reducing it. It was kind of to give the scientific results to the Canadian government uh, to hope that they could uh, start reducing the, the amount of quarantine based on the testing. And so they did that out of Toronto Airport. And there's currently uh, something going on at YVR with WestJet and UBC's research is involved. And so maybe they chose it because there wasn't something going on at the Calgary International Airport. It could be because WestJet is a hub and there are lots of international flights coming into that airport. Uh, But I'm not 100% sure. How do you see this changing? Even people looking ahead and booking travel or thinking about travel for 2021? Well, I think there's a lot of fear around travel. And um, although airlines have come out with statements like the one that just came out from WestJet saying that since March, they've flown safely more than a million guests on more than 25,000 flights with no reported cases of transmission on board. So exposure is different, remember, but no cases of transmission on board. Regardless of that, or hearing all the protocols in place and safety measures that the airlines and airports and um, CATSA have put in place, even uh, the accommodation where they're going, I think they're still nervous. And I think Canadian citizens are worried that international travelers are are going to come in and, and bring more COVID cases and infection rates will go up due to travel. And so I think this is a layer uh, of amongst many that need to be in place to ensure that Canadians can can start to travel and can um, feel safe traveling in the future. Uh, certainly will be uh, something I know uh, many, many people will be watching to see uh, how this uh, this pilot project works and, and the results of that. So as you said, November 2nd uh, is when that starts. I uh, wanted to ask you again as well, it's not often we see the two main carriers in this country fighting which, with each other uh, very openly on Twitter. Uh, today that happened, people were seeing this over refunds, which I, I was looking at that thinking people just want their money back. Uh, what is happening with refunds and people who had their flights and their plans cancelled? Like you, I think during COVID, I think people wanted two things from the airlines. They wanted a safe environment if they had to travel and they want the refunds. And so um, the quibbling is just really irrelevant to me. I think that they're they're on both. Both of the airlines have been giving refunds um, through this whole pandemic. 
uh, they weren't doing it on a massive scale. It's some they were doing the USA flights, and then they started Europe flights. But this is now that they any flights for um, COVID-related expenses or reasons are going back to the credit cards that are on file. And I think that that's the important part. And moving forward, just kind of get over this, get their get their money back. It's going to be a long time. Even the airline themselves said that the Swoop and WestJet um, refunds should expect at least six to nine months to work through all of the eligible requests. So, And they want people to wait. They are going to reach out to each of the clients that are entitled to refunds. So it's going to be a long process. I personally think it's got something to do with the fact that the Canadian government may be looking at an aid package that is airline specific, and this is part of that. Mm. Because, uh, and, and was it wording, do you think, too, when, when we're hearing airlines saying, no, we've been offering refunds? Is it to certain fares, and now with the WestJet announcement saying that they would provide uh, refunds for all uh, types of flights, has it been bogged down in the wording? I think it has been bogged down in the wording. And at the end of the day, like you first said when we started talking about this, it's about the refunds, and that's what uh, people want to know about. They don't want to hear when it all started and who they were giving it to. They just want to know that eventually they're getting their money. <laughs> all right. Big day uh, for travel today. Claire, I know uh, you're very busy as well. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Thanks for having me, Jill. Well, if you watched the last presidential debate, you were probably left with the feeling of, what did I just see? And my guess is you're probably going to tune in tonight to see Donald Trump and Joe Biden have another go at debating on stage. Well, what will be different and what can we expect from tonight's debate? Let's bring in Professor Anil Hira, a professor of political science at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for being with us. Sure, I'm happy to be with you. Uh, do you think it will make any difference or much of a difference uh, the, the having the mute microphone button for when this debate gets going? It'll certainly make a difference for uh, Biden. At least we'll be able to hear what he has to say this time. And uh, I think the more important thing is uh, all signs are that Trump is uh, about to lose this election. And so this is a chance for Joe Biden to try to uh, express his vision for what will happen uh, over the next four years in the country. Uh, do debates really make that big of a difference, though? Uh, do, do we think as far as people who are decided or, or undecided, do they make decisions based on what they hear and see in debates? Well, uh, it has happened historically. Uh, we always think about the Kennedy-Nixon debate, for example, uh, the first televised uh, U.S. presidential debate. And what we're really talking about here is a slim percentage of undecided voters. However, that percentage could be uh, quite important in some of the swing states. Um, you know, for example, the last uh, 2016 election was decided by 11,000 votes in uh, Michigan and about the same in Minnesota. So a small percentage of undecided voters could really swing the election. And do you think, how much do the candidates look at the response to the last debate and the interruptions and the disappointment from a lot of people who watched it and came away from it saying, what was that? We didn't really learn anything from that. All we did was watch two people interrupt each other and, and shout at each other. How much do the candidates, do you think, look at that and then use that to frame how they will act tonight? I think it's pretty clear that Trump's uh, numbers went down precipitously after that last debate. Um, they've bounced back somewhat now, but I would expect a very different strategy from him. 
Um, we've seen over the last few days that he's been hammering on Biden's son, Hunter, and supposed uh, corruption involved with uh, deals in China. Um, of course, Trump has his own uh, skeletons in his closet, so it could go back and forth. But I expect that uh, he, what he's really trying to do is uh, trip Biden up and show that he's not up to the task. Um, everyone's concerned about Biden's age, so they're all waiting for, or Trump is hoping for, a gaffe on his part. Uh, when you mentioned too some, some of the other stories that uh, have made headlines, uh, some in, in some cases for not being uh, shared as much on some, I guess, more traditional news platforms. How does that play into it? Do you think where we have uh, this election happening, where there are debates that are broadcast on television in that more traditional way uh, that are competing against information that might be shared on things like Facebook or other types of social media outlets? It's very concerning, especially given the really strange uh, nature of this uh, COVID-based election where we've already had uh, 40 million votes uh, uh, sent in, uh, where there's a great deal of lack of clarity around uh, voting regulations and mail-in ballots, and there is obviously uh, all kinds of lineups in various states uh, just to be able to go to the in-person voting for those who haven't registered Uh, There was just a court case last week that was decided in Pennsylvania about how long after the election date they could uh, count ballots, you know, that had been postmarked uh, before the election date. And uh, that was in uh, Biden's favor. They gave three extra days. But frankly, these election rules are all decided on a county-by-county basis in most states. And so we've got uh, a, a really disorganized kind of system. Uh, since the last debate, uh, we've seen uh, Donald Trump test positive for COVID-19, uh, he and the First Lady. Uh, there have been a lot uh, of uh, questions raised about testing, uh, the fact that he didn't uh, offer up, or there's no confirmation, I suppose, of a negative test before uh, he boarded uh, the aircraft to go to tonight's debate. Do you think that that will uh, kind of uh, steer the conversation or steer things that way rather than talking about policy? Yeah, it's a strange election in that sense, too. It's usually, in American politics, it's usually, it's the economy, stupid. Going back to uh, Clinton's, uh, President Clinton's uh, campaign slogan. Uh, But in this case, COVID is the number one issue. And that's the thing that is going to be the anchor weight that will drag Trump's campaign down. And so I guess the question is, uh, is Trump really fighting for his legacy at this point? Uh, or is he going to try to stick enough dirt on Biden to to hopefully pull out the election? The signs are that uh, there still are favorable ratings uh, in regard to Trump in terms of the economy. So Biden's going to keep trying to steer the conversation back to his mishandling of COVID. Uh, how much confidence do you have that there will be, uh, it will be civil uh, on the stage tonight when there still will be after uh, after the muted portion of uh, the mic muted so the other person can answer? There is then the mics open to open discussion. Do you think it's possible of having open discussion with these two candidates where the viewers and the listeners will actually take something away? Well, I think a lot of the undecided viewers are not necessarily policy wonks. They're going to be looking at the individuals uh, and sizing them up. Are these individuals that we see as natural leaders that we would feel comfortable with in terms of guiding us over the next four years? Uh, For Trump, obviously, the downside is his volatility. His faults are very well known now. But Biden is still a big unknown factor, and he needs to show his competence and his uh, 
congeniality, but also his uh, his ability to uh, step up to the plate in terms of the rigors of the office. Um, so this is really a test run for Biden more than anything else. And uh, looking ahead past uh, the debate, uh, how uh, concerning do you think it is when when Trump has been asked, and I know it's hypotheticals and, and politicians especially don't like dealing with hypotheticals, but talking about the transfer of power, should he lose the election and not really committing to the peaceful transfer of power? Yeah, that's also an unknown factor. I don't think the institutions or the military... Uh, I don't think any normal institutions will back Trump in this. Even the Republican Party and the senators have said there's no way they would uh, not support a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, But the real unknown is how long is this election going to be taken? Is it going to take to count the final votes of the election? How much of it's going to be disputed? You know, going back to the 2000 election, how many ballots will be contested? And then beyond that, uh, Trump enjoys kind of a cult-like status among a certain percentage of the population, and will he uh, engage in some kind of call for arms, or will he engage in endless lawsuits? Uh, these things could drag on for quite a while. And when we talk, uh, you talk to about people who will be tuning in tonight to, to watch and listen to this debate. Does it seem strange at all that there are things that Donald Trump could talk about, concrete things that he has achieved, that he has done, uh, that he's done, whether he's talking about foreign policy, uh, some other issues. But instead of doing that, he, t- he tends to attack Joe Biden and and go that route instead. Is that ever uh, the 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 best way to go, or or the most uh, pause, uh, the the way that, that that gets you the most points? Well, negative ads do work. We as much as we uh, we are loath to admit that negative ads uh, do work against candidates, but there has to be something positive that goes along with that. And I, I agree with you. Trump is the most unpredictable candidate in modern history. Um, when he was running the first time, no one really knew much about him. And so there was this latent promise that he was going to bring back manufacturing, he was going to fix health care, he was going to engage in immigration reform, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And right now, uh, his campaign really defies any kind of logic because it's just uh, admired in personal grievances. There's no real agenda for his second term. Well, uh, as we know, election campaigns can get heated. There can be a lot of negativity, whether it's attack ads, one candidate attacking the past of another candidate. And unfortunately, there is research to show that that kind of negativity does get traction. People respond to it. But it's also nice to see when candidates from different parties step up to support one another. And that is what we saw in Coquitlam, Millardville. And a green party candidate who is running in that riding is today thanking her opponents for standing up. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Nicola Sperling, the BC Green candidate for Coquitlam Millardville. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, can you tell us exactly what happened leading up to to this, what happened today? And we'll get to that in a second. But what happened to you? Unfortunately, uh, a very negative uh, interaction. Yes, so uh, we ended up having a gentleman arrive at our sign-waving event yesterday, and he showed up wearing a billboard. It said, I love J.K. Rowling on the front, and on the back it spoke about not wanting gender ideology taught in schools. And this is something that I deal with a lot online. I receive a lot of transphobic hate online, and a lot of it stems from J.K. Rowling's comments on trans people. 
But this person had uh, was the same person that paid for a billboard, which also said, I love J.K. Rowling on Hastings Street. And people don't realize that that's uh, a transphobic message because of the comments that J.K. Rowling had, uh, had put out on Twitter over the last year. So he showed up. Uh, I was crossing the intersection to go and speak with the, my fellow candidates. Uh, who were also with the Green Party. We had a, a big Tri-Cities, uh, Tri-Cities green waving event. And as I was crossing, they told me someone was following me. So I turned around and I saw this gentleman there. And he came right up to me. He had his phone in my face recording me. And uh, I obviously didn't want to put my volunteers in a position where they felt uncomfortable. And I have a lot of experience dealing with hate. It's, it's not something that gets to me anymore. Uh, because unfortunately I've become desensitized to it by now. And I tried to move over to different corners of the intersection and and pull him away from my volunteers because he was uh, harassing them and making them feel extremely uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, even hearing you say that you've become desensitized to it because you've experienced so much is just, uh, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with that. But it's just awful that, that you have to put up with this in, in online, in public, and, and the fact that this happens so much. It is. I mean, it sort of happened periodically over the years. In 2017, I ran for the BC Greens and I was outed uh, through the media locally and then that spread across Canada. So that was my first experience really with this transphobic hate. And it sort of just grew from there due to multiple incidents. I had Megan Murphy attack me, send her uh, supporters after me on uh, Twitter and Facebook. And then that died down. And then I had the JK Rowling situation and uh, Graham Lyman, who's sort of a well-known figure over in the UK, because a lot of this hate comes from the UK. And it's just uh, culminated mostly in this J.K. Rowling situation earlier in the year, where I'd called out her transphobia, she threatened to sue me, and uh, she obviously since then has put out a lot of content that uh, on Twitter that shows just how transphobic she is, but at the time people didn't necessarily realize that. And uh, throughout the year, it's just been steady hate. But at the time, it was at the point where I was receiving about 10 hate messages a second. Um, So just an absolutely enormous amount. Why do you think it is that that J.K. Rowling's comments, I I mean, obviously, she's a a famous person and she has a a very large following and and people do pay attention to what she says. Uh, But some of the things she has said to questioning, uh, questioning the the difference, I suppose, uh, between women and trans women, not saying one one is bad, one is one is good, but questioning that it does seem like such a lightning rod um, for hatred. Well, it is. And I think when you have this large audience, you have a responsibility to act carefully. And I don't think that that's something that she's done. I don't think she realizes uh, the impact, or maybe she does and she doesn't care, but it has a massive impact on trans people, particularly trans children, because her work, Harry Potter uh, specifically, reaches trans children and they hear about the author being transphobic and it makes them wonder if Uh, who they are is okay and it leads to mental health problems because we know that if trans people are accepted they experience similar levels of mental health issues uh, to cis folks to non-trans folks and when they receive this societal hatred the numbers of deaths go way up because uh, they feel like they're they they, uh, don't have worth in this world so i mean i since that happened 
I've heard from uh, parents who said that their children now feel like maybe they shouldn't exist because J.K. Rowling doesn't believe they exist. And, and that's absolutely heartbreaking to hear. I don't think anyone should be feeling like they don't deserve to exist in this world. And uh, being a trans person myself, I understand the uh, turmoil that you go through until you can come to terms with who you are and, and come out and live your authentic life. So uh, it's, that's why I speak up against uh, people like J.K. Rowling, because I know the harm that uh, that kind of rhetoric poses. Uh, what happened then when you posted about uh, the fact that this person showed up at your sign waving and was in your face and was harassing you? Well, there was just a huge outpouring of support. Uh, I was completely overwhelmed by it on both Twitter and Facebook. And my volunteers were absolutely incredible in supporting me uh, in person that day as well. And I had a number of people saying, it would be really nice if uh, the other candidates in the riding, if Selena Robinson and Will Davis, were to do something about this. And I had replied and I said, well, I don't expect them to come out. It's the final days of the campaign. Everyone's super busy. But it would be nice if they were to denounce hatred in the Coquitlam Maillard Valeria. And Will and Selena responded almost immediately and said, we'll make the time and we'll be there. And that, to me, is absolutely incredible. Like I said, I know how busy they are. This is the final days of the campaign, they have so much to do and they're taking time out of their day to support me and to stand up to hatred and, and show that the LGBTQ2 plus community is accepted here. So that is extremely meaningful. It's uh, almost unheard of in politics to see that kind of cross-partisan support. And I have my issues with uh, the BC NDP and the BC Liberals in, in terms of their support for LGBTQ2 plus people. Uh, but as far as the candidates in my riding, I've known Selena for quite a while. I know that she supports LGBTQ2 plus people. And uh, we've developed a friendship over that. Uh, I'm friends with her son. So I, I know that that is something that she supports. Will Davis, I didn't know his, uh, all that well until this campaign started. Uh, I've added him as a friend on, on Facebook, and I've been following him on Twitter. Uh, but I didn't know much about him, so to see him uh, coming out and, and being supportive as well was extremely meaningful, especially given the recent history with the BC Liberals. Uh, and so how important is it, do you think, to have that, that nonpartisan support, like you said, when you do still have issues with the party? I think it's... Extremely important. I actually think that uh, candidates need to speak out more um, because, you know, I had issues with CDP, for instance. We put forward legislation to ban conversion therapy and they didn't support it. They stopped that from moving forward and, and we wanted to remove gendered language from um, FOIs and, and, and uh, personal privacy and they stopped that as well. So I have my issues there, but if we can see candidates from those parties speaking out against uh, the kind of leadership that they're seeing and not addressing these issues and uh, and voting with their conscience. I think part of the issue that I have with these parties is that they're whipped and um, when the party tries to push them to abandon a campaign promise or abandon their principles, we don't see them standing up, up enough. And uh, I think in particular having these candidates support LGBTQ2 plus people and particularly Will Davis, since the party itself has not been very supportive, coming out and, and showing his support, that's been really meaningful. 
And also over the last three and a half years, we've seen collaborative politics work. We've seen three and a half years of a minority government with the BC Greens and the BC NDP working together. And unfortunately, with the BC NDP calling a snap election, they threw a wrench into that support and and sort of abandoned that support. But at the same time, we've seen that collaborative politics can work. And I want to see more of that. So my hope is that we see another minority government situation because I think the best policy gets put forward when it has diverse perspectives speaking to it and and looking it over. And I think that's what we achieve by having multiple parties working across party lines to come up with good policy. All right, Nicola, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and, and having this important conversation. Well, uh, earlier today in cities across the country, hospitality workers rallied trying to get more attention, saying the hard hit tourism and hospitality industry in this country needs a better bailout. It needs money, needs help to make sure that workers can keep their jobs and in some cases get their jobs back. And I'm joined now by Michelle Travis, who is a researcher with Unite Here Local 40. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, How did things go with the rallies across Canada? Uh, They went well today. Uh, Hospitality workers in Vancouver, Toronto and Ottawa uh, held uh, rallies uh, actions to uh, send a message to the federal government, uh, which is considering providing more uh, sort of targeted sectoral relief to hospitality, uh, air travel sectors. And and the message today was really, you know, any bailouts really should be conditioned on ensuring that uh, uh, there are measures to protect workers' jobs. Uh, going forward. Do you have an idea on how many workers at this point uh, have been laid off? Um, that's a good question. I don't have a specific number for you. I would say of, of our members, I would say we're still in the 70 to 80 uh, percent of workers have been laid off. Um, some were brought back in the summer when there was a little bit of bump in travel. But again, you know, with folks back in school, um, there's a slowdown naturally in the sector. But, you know, given you know, that we're seeing a resurgence in, in COVID and there are no meetings and international uh, travel is still restricted, um, we're seeing that most folks are, are not working right now. And would there be companies, though, and places in the industry that are eligible or that are, are able to access the other types of help, be it the rent subsidy, the wage subsidy, those types of help to try and get through this? Um, those other supports have been offered. Uh, the government just announced that they were going to make some changes on the, on the, on the rent program. Some more companies could tap that. Um, you know, we know that uh, companies have uh, also tried to use the uh, the business development uh, and economic development loans. Um, you know, we we one of the things that the or several things that the industry is asking for are interest free loans, um, government backed. Uh, uh, government-backed loans and other sort of forms of grants and assistance. And really what we're trying to say is that, look, you know, we understand the industry is obviously hard hit. We're not against the industry getting support. Our concern is that while the industry is getting support from their government, they, uh, their workers face permanent layoffs. And really what they're looking for from their employers is a commitment and good faith, you know, steps to and, you know, do everything they can to try to keep the workforce intact. And by that we mean uh, being able to put workers on the uh, making sure that all workers are put on the wage subsidy program. Um, we're not seeing enough employers do that. And we're also uh, suggesting that, you know, workers, this also needs to be conditioned on uh, making sure workers are brought back to their jobs, that they have up to 24 months to do that. 
Um, we're, we're not seeing that those sort of protections put in place. And for where airport workers, um, where the most of the workers who work in an airport are contracted, um, we we also think any sort of relief to airports needs to come with um, some guarantees that there's an effort to retain workers who have you know provided years and years of service to make those uh, airports run. Uh, is there any optimism uh, with the news today uh, that I know it's only a pilot project uh, starting up on November 2nd in Calgary to replace or try and replace the quarantine with testing for COVID-19? And I, I know that will still be uh, a way in the future, but is there any optimism there that that could be one of the steps taken to restart the airline industry? Um, you know, it's an interesting pilot. Um, you know, I know there there were a lot of discussions about how can we uh, get the industry up and running again through increased testing, uh, other measures like that. And we, we certainly support that. Um, you know, our overriding concern is making sure it's safe. Um, and I think that's everybody's overriding concern. Um, I, I think for us, it's making sure, you know, workers just need some sort of sense of certainty. Uh, and, you know, again, like it's very, hard, very difficult to have certainty at this moment. But, you know, being able to see the government and industry commit to uh, ensuring that workers stay attached to their jobs um, so that there is an opportunity to come back will make we think that will make the recovery smoother uh, once we're in that sort of phase. And when we talk about hotel workers, uh, like you said, a bit of a bump in the summer, but hotels have been hit so hard with no really international travelers. Uh, mm-hmm. how, what, what specifically, outside of those government programs we've been talking about, what specifically would you like to see them get? Um, I'm sorry, in terms of the, the, the well, industry and in terms of workers? I mean, in terms of workers, like you said, to, to make mm-hmm. sure that they can be hired back and mm-hmm. that, but it's got to be, I mean, if you're not working right now or you've got your hours cut back significantly, that can only mm-hmm. go on for so long. Um, right. I mean, we're glad that the government has changed the, some of the, the rules around EI and that they've implemented the CRB, the Canada Recovery Benefit, uh, as a replacement to CERB. Um, so a, a lot of our members, a lot of other workers in the, hotel, in the hospitality industry are tapping those programs right now. Um, and so that's going to provide some ongoing cushion. Um, you know, they're looking for other work. There's just not a lot of work, other work out there. Um, maybe they can find something part time, but it's not enough to get by right now. Um, it really, like having some some promise that they'd be able to go back to their job when the industry recovers, um, whether that's you know being on the wage subsidy program, whether that's being recalled, um, that provides some measure of certainty for workers who are very concerned about what the future holds. Uh, and I know there's been the speculation, and nobody knows this for sure, but the speculation that there, we might not see uh, a real recovery in this part of the economy until 2022. Uh, that mm-hmm. just seems almost difficult to, to kind of even imagine what that looks like. It is hard to fathom, and it's scary. Um, you know, it remains to be seen what's going to happen next year. Um, people are, you know, we've talked to workers in the industry, uh, we talked to our employers, you know, hopeful that, you know, the spring and the summer of next year will start to take a turn for the better. But, you know, to really, a, it'll be some time before we see the industry recover to the levels it was at, you know, before the pandemic hit. And, you know, cities like Vancouver, Toronto, these are the highest, um, you know, these are some of the most successful uh, hospitality markets in the country. And right now, they're the worst performing markets in the country um, because of independence on international travel. And it is going to take some time to recover. And, um, you know, <laughs> what you asked is a good question. And we think we're all you know, concerned about you know, how long it's going to take for the industry to turn around. 
Um, but, you know, do, we do want to be able to see some sort of connection maintained because, uh, you know, a lot of these employers are going to continue to, you know, have hotels or maybe some change in the ownership. Uh, but uh, we do we do expect a lot of these places to be ongoing concerns and, you know, workers want to know they, they can go back um, rather than be, you know, fired and replaced. And how would you rate the response so far from the federal government? Um, you know, we're, we're, we haven't gotten much of a response at this point. Uh, we are, you know, hopeful that uh, the ministers that we've reached out to uh, will take this seriously. Um, we're reaching out to uh, the Minister of Finance um, and other, I mean, the Minister of Labor uh, and other key ministers to, to make sure that they are, you know, thinking about this before they uh, uh, roll out their, their programs. And it's not really clear when that's going to happen. It seems like it's taking a little bit longer than, than we expected. Um, but, you know, we're certainly very hopeful. Um, uh, we have had conversations around the wage subsidy program and concerns we've had about the, the slow uptake or the lack of uptake we've seen in our industry. And I think they've heard those concerns. Um, they do continue to adjust that program. Um, you know, whether that's going to be enough, um, I think they've at least been open to hear feedback um, and um, work on that. So we hope that continues. But also really, they, they, I think the response really requires uh, more action and, and a real commitment to making sure that workers stay attached to their jobs.